Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Elena McGrath, your host for today. Here with me is urban historian Luis Sierra, Associate Professor of History at Thomas More University. Dr. Sierra is the author of La Paz's Colonial Specters, Urbanization, Migration, and Indigenous Political Participation, 1900 to 1952, out this year from Bloomsbury. Dr. Sierra, welcome to the podcast. Elena, thank you so much for having me today. So let's start with um, the question of how you came to this project. How did you get interested in Bolivia? Where did you do your graduate work? And what led you to La Paz in particular? Yeah, so um, I have to say that uh, what really got me interested in Bolivia to begin with um, as an academic subject was Brooke Larson's book on Cochabamba. And... um, it, it was just a, it really captured my imagination the way that she, you know, using other scholars work, obviously, because this is a much older concept, but the way that she brought in vertical integration and then how she showed the transformation of Cochabamba from, uh, through the colonial um, era, right? And then into the, the early 1800s. Um, that's really what captured me. And that was a, a reading group that we did my first year of, um, of grad school um, with my advisor, um, Nancy Applebaum at SUNY Binghamton. Um, That's the State University of New York at Binghamton um, or Binghamton University, I think is also acceptable to be calling it that. Um, And I worked with Nancy primarily there. Um, uh, Nancy Applebaum, who's uh, uh, also a Latin Americanist and focuses on race and nation in Colombia. And so, and that's where I did my graduate work. So that's what really got me started with, with Bolivia. Um, and then, you know, reading further, learning more about Bolivian history specifically, right? Those things kind of got me into um, indigenous peoples, race, uh, that sort of thing. I think my very, very first project that I did was about um court records and the use of the word indígena in these um, land disputes that I had found at the National Archive the very first um, very first time I went to Bolivia on, on a research trip. Um, subsequently, what got me interested in La Paz itself was a document that I found in the um, Archivo La Paz. Um, that document described an area outside the walls of the city or uh, extramuro. And I didn't understand what that meant because one, uh, there was no wall, you know, in 21st century or 20, late 20th century Bolivia. Um, one, and then two, there was no wall when the document was written, which was the early um, 1900s, if I recall that document correctly. And so um, I started asking what wall the, the document was discussing, and they told me, well, the, the wall from, um, you know, the Cerco de la Paz in 1780, 1781 with Tupac Katari. And so that 
is kind of where um, I got hooked into this project. Um, and I think I found that document maybe my second year or my first, I can't remember, somewhere in 2006 or uh, 2007, somewhere in there is when I first started um, with that. And the project evolved from there, basically. So let's talk a little bit more about the wall because um, this extra muro concept is one of the major themes in your book, one of the the big colonial specter, I think, um, of your title. And um, and as you said, it it didn't exist, um, and it, it really only existed for a very fort, short period of time as a as a kind of defensive fortification in the 1780s. So can you talk a little bit about the Tupac Katari uprising uh, for for listeners who may not be familiar and why this particular um, figure of of the wall and what is beyond it has has had such a hold on the the imagination of elite paseños. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I will say that I'm not a colonialist, right? So I do, I'm doing this from memory. From, uh, from I've what put I you remember. on the spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's okay. I, I think I know most of it, but uh, if I, if I get it wrong, you can you can certainly help me. Right? We have a Pan Andean rebellion in 1780, 1781 that includes um, what is today kind of um, Peru, um, the area of La Paz in Bolivia, but also uh, Chuquisaca, right, or, or um, Sucre region as well. Um, and that entire area is rebelling, but the root causes of those rebellions differ slightly. And um, the leadership of those three different areas differs as well, right? In the La Paz region, we have an Aymara indigenous person who uh, is leading that um, rebellion in some ways, or in many ways, sorry. And he uh, takes the name of Tupac Katari. His name is um, Juliana Pasa. And so they... Um, surround the city of La Paz, right? And they decide to lay siege to it in 1780, 1781. And so the wall is built in that time frame to defend the quote-unquote Spanish city from its indigenous uh, parishes that lay outside of it. The problem from the very beginning is that those indigenous parishes that lay across, uh, I think it's two different rivers, really, um, they were integral to the city. They were part of the city. Um, if you read more in depth on the actual siege, you find that people found ways to get around the wall and to smuggle goods in in and out, even though the siege, the point of the siege was to starve um, the urban center, the Spanish urban center um, to say that the wall didn't last very long is very true, right? About 10 months at the very most. Um, and it was actually destroyed by the rebels when they destroyed dams upriver. Um, those dams then flooded the city center uh, and sort of made the wall um, pretty obsolete as a defensive barrier from the indigenous parishes. What the wall does in terms of the imagination, though, is that it... I it begins or I think it solidifies in some ways a racial geography that then is a spectral presence in the 20th century and is part of the nation building process, right? That's one of the things that is really clear, especially because La Paz becomes the national capital. And then, you know, um, 
it takes on more importance, not only as an urban center, but then also the capital of the country, um, uh, the administrative capital of the country, uh, if, if we want to be clear about that. So the, the wall really is, is, a, is that. It, it, it was meant to defend against these indigenous rebels who were threatening the city center. The indigenous rebels destroy um, some uh, dams and dikes upstream. That wall is then destroyed, but it remains as part of the imaginary. It, even to the point where, you know, I was having lunch in 2009 um, with uh, some Bolivians and we were talking about my project and I, I didn't say anything about Extramuro, right? I was just talking about, so I'm looking at indigenous migration to the Zona Indígena in La Paz. And, um, you know, somebody said, so what you're looking at is the Extramuro, right? And, you know, I was mystified by people using this term in their everyday kind of conversation. So I asked, um, and so I started to kind of pull at that string. What does that mean for people? How how does that then shape the rest of the urban center? Um, and what what does that racial geography then represent for Bolivia as a nation today? If we can still use it as a way to reference um, the racial geography of the city or uh, the perceived racial geography of the city, because that's one thing that I try to argue in the book that. Um, this rubric of Sona Indígena, what it does is it obscures rather than clarify um, because what you find is mixed race people, you find indigenous peoples from the countryside, you find um, foreigners, uh, you find what would be considered, you know, uh, Criollo whites in Bolivia. So it, it, it obscures a lot. It's not going to be a surprise to scholars of of. Latin American history generally that there would be a racialized geography right of an urban center but the thing that's so striking about La Paz is it's it's such an indigenous city and and has been sort of from the beginning and so so you have this this sort of city center um that is that is the the sort of Spanish part of the city and then as, as it grows you you have elites moving down into the into the lower altitudes but um but so so another another kind of figment that comes up in your book is um this prohibition that that many people talk about in the early 20th century there was this idea that that um indigenous people especially wearing indigenous clothing were were prohibited legally from entering the plaza murillo were were and prohibited from you know entering the center of of the urban administrative space and and one of the things your book explores is that that is also something that has emerged in popular memory and that historians have repeated, but there wasn't actually a legal prohibition, was there? No, that was such an interesting sort of uh, journey for me. And um, that chapter was not part of the original dissertation at all. Um, it's something that I came back to later and sort of um, looked at more deeply because it it really was something that I wanted to explore as an independent sort of idea, right? This idea of, well, why do people repeat this 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 notion that there was a law, a legal prohibition um, for indigenous peoples in the city center? And where does it come from, right? And so that was the 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 genesis of of where that um that chapter emerges. And 
um, I have to thank other scholars because uh, there's no other way to do uh, anything in this community. Um, you know, I I asked um, Brooke Larson. I was in contact with Laura Gokowitz. Um, I asked Rosana Barragan. I asked other um, Bolivian scholars, you know, um, uh, where might I find that prohibition? Where have you seen it, right? Um, and what I discovered through um, Liz Shesko is that there is a mention of a bar gating, a prohibition, right? And all it references is some ordinance. It doesn't actually tell you what's being um, what's being um, sort of canceled out, right? And so I start looking in the um, sorry the congressional archives through various municipal ordinances. I look in um, sort of the La Paz City Archive. I went to. Um, uh, the municipality as well, looking there, trying to figure out, well, what ordinances discuss this. And what I found was, like I said, uh, in Wascar Ari's, Lichesco showed me in Wascar Ari, he mentions the, the, the ending of that prohibition in 1935 in a, in a newspaper article. So I went back to that newspaper article to try to dig that out. And there, there was really nothing to dig out. As I was looking through compendiums of laws in Bolivia, um, I found nothing that really related to this kind of prohibition. When I went through the minutes of the city council and started looking at um, also uh, a sort of magazine that the, the municipality produced um, about its activities, that's where I started finding more information about this, these ordinances and prohibitions. And so that led me on uh, sort of looking at what was being said and done at the municipal level. And that's where I found prohibitions that didn't directly prohibit indigenous peoples, but did as a whole start to uh, prohibit indigenous peoples. And here's what I mean by that. We have to remember two things, right? This was practically unenforceable. As you said, La Paz was an indigenous city from the very beginning, right? We have three reducciones right around the Spanish city center. Um, San Francisco, Santa Barbara, San Pedro, right? All three of those right around the city center. Um, so yes, it's an indigenous city from the very beginning practically unenforceable, but here's how they tried to enforce. They prohibited tailors from making the so-called indigenous outfit, and then they specified what that was, right? And that prohibition came out in newspapers um, right around the centennial celebrations, uh, just before and mm. just after. Um, but they relied on older ordinances, one from 1899, unsurprisingly, with the uh, uh, you know, the federal war of 1899, that prohibition, 1899, was the tailors can't make these outfits prohibition. Does that make sense? So they're mm -hmm. using this 1899 thing back now in 1925. And then the second one is making um, the urban center for policing not include a lot of the indigenous neighborhoods. Right. So they would they said for the centennial celebration, OK, the neighborhoods that conform part of the city center are the following neighborhoods. 
if we see any people, you know, from outside of these areas, we're going to push them back out, basically. So there were kind of checkpoints to get into what was the city center to try to prevent these indigenous peoples from participating in the centennial celebrations. Um, then uh, there were prohibitions on costumes and costume parties outside of the city center. There were uh, You needed to apply for licenses. You needed to pay for... Um, you know, however many people were going to be participating in your event, you needed to pay for their tax up front, right? And so you're talking um, for an establishment that was for indigenous peoples, uh, one and a half Bolivianos per person up front, right? For somebody who doesn't have that kind of, of, of cash available. So there are these various ways that all that is put together um, to prohibit indigenous peoples. Does that um, make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so what you have is a series of things that aren't technically prohibitions on indigenous people entering the space, but de facto end up that way. And indigenous people clearly remember they they were not, you know, confused as to what the point of these were, right? They, they clearly remember what um, the point of all this policing of space was, even if the city itself um, was not, was not you know, could not do it as explicitly as, um, as the, as popular memory has it. Has it. Right. So a de facto prohibition is a prohibition, right? So people, um, you know, that's the interesting thing about the historical memory. There's no law, but essentially there is a custom that was pretty much law in that, in that sort of larger sense. And, the the other thing that I did want to say is if we have this wall and we had this prohibition, right, this very stark prohibition, then it was very clear that we could talk about a colonialist racial state, you know, um, and we can't do that really <laughs> with Bolivia. You just can't. It's, it's it, we have this wall, but the references are to these local ordinances, right? So we had this really interesting dynamic. One of the things that's interesting to me is that um, the prohibition on on making certain kinds of clothing coming out of um, 1899 really harkens back to the way the viceroy responded actually to the Tupac Amaru rebellion to to prohibiting wearing of indigenous clothes in in Peru in the 1780s after the after putting down the Tupac Amaru and Tupac Atari rebellions. Um, but so what what's interesting to me about this is that the, you have this increased policing. This isn't a story of um, exclusion that then gets decreasingly tenable over the course of the 20th century. You have an increase in the amount of poli- policing of, of this city center space as a kind of segregated space around the centennial in 1925. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about the way that intellectuals and elites were thinking about um, the Bolivian nation and indigenous people's relationship to it around that time, because this is these decades are really a time when um, you have you have a lot of thinking about modernity. You have a lot of thinking about um, the the potential for cities and what they what the growth of the Bolivian nation, right? And so you argue in your second chapter that um, Bolivian elites did not see indigenous people as fitting their vision of a strong nation. Um, but at the same time, they couldn't escape the fact that indigenous people were 
um, building its roads, transporting its goods, manufacturing and selling um, most of the economy, keeping the houses and kitchens clean, not to mention raising elites' children, right? So, so anything that was um, being produced for the future of Bolivia was also necessarily incorporating indigenous people. And yet there was a great deal of intellectual work done to try to, to square this circle, right? To, 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 on the one hand, um, exclude indigenous people from, from modernity. And on the other hand, um, incorporate them on some level. So can you talk a little bit about how your second chapter gets into this sort of thorny, uh, philosophical moment? I really wanted to understand from a, a broader perspective, right? And, and in some ways, I think my training uh, set me up for this, uh, to think about how different Latin American intellectuals had dealt with their quote-unquote inferior populations based on these uh, you know, European 19th century notions of science and of you know, uh, racial hierarchy, right? And the big problem in Latin America was you couldn't have this this concept of, of a hard, you, well, let me rephrase that. In places like Bolivia, a concept of a hard eugenics would be really difficult to sort of square because, right, indigenous peoples can never be their quote unquote backwardness can never be overcome. Their innate backwardness can never be overcome. And so in order to kind of um, fight against this notion, many Latin American intellectuals with large populations of either indigenous peoples um, or Africa, African descended peoples or both, they would argue that environment was also a key component and education would be a key component of raising people up out of their backwardness, right? And this was a way in which they could sort of say, we can build a better nation with this, uh, with, with these indigenous peoples, if we put them in the right environment, if we give them the education that's necessary, if we bring them the modernity that is uh, that they're lacking in order to make us this modern sort of nation. That's the larger kind of... Uh, racial ideology that kind of shapes this moment. In Bolivia in particular, I, I think um, that especially Paseño intellectuals had a difficulty understanding how they were going to incorporate um, Aymara populations. And I feel like that, let me rephrase because it's not I feel. Um, it seems to me based on what I've read that that some of that fear of Aymaras comes from um, the 1899 rebellion, right? That these people are, in fact, sentient political actors that can actually assert their um, uh, rights. Those That fear of those peoples, right, leads Paseño intellectuals into these sort of logical gymnastics of saying, okay, living Indians really can't be modern. So what we need to do is figure out how to bring them to modernity, right? Now, in some of the racial thinking in Bolivia, because of the glorious past of these indigenous peoples with uh, Tiawanaku and then uh, alternately as an alternate indigenous identity, um, uh, um, the the Quechua um, culture, Machu Picchu, um, all, all that was done uh, by the Incas, right? That sort of, it, 
those roots, that rich root of, of indigenous culture then for some intellectuals could be used to help build up the nation. In other words, they had it within them to be, um, you know, civilized and modern and um, help bring Bolivia to modernity. But, you know, how to bring them to modernity was also another question here. And, you know, some of the ways in which you do that would be what I call the separatist incorporation, because I couldn't really think of another way to say it. Um, but this notion that somehow what you do is you keep indigenous peoples away from race mixing in their own element. This means in agricultural zones, right? As agricultural workers, as productive agricultural workers for the nation, right? And then what you then do is you bring modernity to them or you bring this intervention to them. Some intellectuals would argue, well, what you bring to them is education, Right. And so you um, get a, a big movement towards rural schools and sort of um, changing indigenous cultures in that way. Um, others would say, well, what you do is you teach them modern uh, agricultural processes, uh, bring in modern machinery, and you make them productive members of the nation. The idea there is always to kind of intervene and mold into what you want the indigenous person to be um, without really regard to the diversity, um, without really regard to um, whether or not these indigenous peoples even bought into this notion of modernity, right? Um, and what Bolivian intellectuals were doing is like this alchemy, right? They, some would say, okay, it's a little bit of environment. It's a little bit of education. It's a little bit of, of uh, you know, exposure to, modern concepts and ideas. Others, you know, would say, no, 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 what we need to do is we need to bring in uh, hundreds of thousands of European migrants to whiten the population. But how do we attract them? We don't have a port. How do we attract them? We don't have, um, you know, what our neighbors have in terms of, of uh, attracting them in the ways that Brazil did, in the way that ways that um, uh, Argentina did, in the ways that Chile did, right? Um, and so, uh, it was an interesting sort of way to under, try to understand why these intellectuals thought this way and then what effect it has on policy, right? Because all of the um, intellectuals that I explore, many of them or most of them had some role in either local government or in national government, sometimes even both, right? And so it clearly had consequences. It wasn't just a discussion of like, well, what do we do with our races and this sort of uh, academic navel gazing? It, it went beyond that. It went into, well, what do they think we can practically do? Does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Um, and as you as you say, it it has there there are real policy implications of what these intellectuals are are imagining, um, and and particularly as as concerns your book, they're trying to a lot of these policies are designed to do um, bring modernity but keep these people in place, right? Keep keep them outside the wall essentially, right? Um, but of course, that is not at all what happens right and and so the story of of the 20th century the first half of the 20th century in many parts of latin america but particularly la paz is massive amounts of migration from the countryside to the city right and so 
Um, and a lot of this migration is going to be Aymara speaking and also to some degree Quechua speaking indigenous migrants. Um, so in, in your next chapter, you, you sort of take the position of the migrants, right? You're looking at how these people inter integrated themselves into the city life. Um, and in, in particular, you focus on unions and mutual aid societies as sort of mechanisms by which people brought themselves into urban life and, and insisted upon their value in urban society. So can you talk a little bit about what these unions and, and aid societies looked like and how they helped migrants get a foothold? Sure. I, I really wanted to understand, right, as a historian, you're always looking back. And what I saw in La Paz de Zona Indígena was really vibrant uh, communities of various kinds. Um, I saw, you know, the markets. I saw people interacting with each other. I saw uh, the various festivals that went on throughout the year. I saw the kind of integral nature of various kinds of organizations. Uh, one of them was uh, the Federación de, de Juntas um, Vecinales, right, which are these neighborhood associations. That federation still exists today. Uh, there's one in El Alto. There's one in La Paz. Uh, the one in El Alto is uh, very politically active, as we know, um, very politically active and very mobilized um, in a lot of ways. So I wanted to understand that from a historical perspective um, to really look at, okay, how do these migrants change the urban space? Because we have this massive migration that happens and we have this really vibrant culture that develops in La Paz. And I can't remember if it's, uh, if it's uh, Javier... Albo's book, or if it's a an edited volume, right? Las dos caras de La Paz is is is, is the name of it, I think, right? The indigenous face of La Paz, and and then the sort of criollo face. And so, I really wanted to understand, okay, how do pe how did people create this vibrant and rich culture of the present? Because it didn't come and spring out of nowhere. Um, and so, I started trying to understand how people tried to integrate into the cities. And one of the very first mechanisms was lay brotherhoods. Um, lay brotherhoods bringing uh, people into community in the urban space. And one of the really um, important things to highlight here is that this institution is very familiar to people in the Aymara countryside in terms of, um, you know, the cargo system, right? And so it was not that odd for them to then translate or transfer those kinds of um, skills that they deployed in their communities at home to deploy them in urban spaces, right? To bring people in, to then organize festivals, to make sure the church is clean, to organize the neighborhood for neighborhood cleaning, right? Um, helping people find work. And what you find is these overlapping sets of identities. So what I found, especially in the um, very central urban neighborhoods, is that there was a lot of overlap between uh, the lay brotherhood, where people worked, and then the neighborhood association, right? So these three things kind of uh, memberships often overlapped. Um, 
not always, but often, especially in the urban, the the sort of um, very close urban core. As La Paz becomes bigger and bigger, the way that people uh, get incorporated into the urban center changes and shifts depending on where they are, where they're coming from, um, the period we're talking about. Um, all of that kind of has an effect, but these neighborhood associations and the craft guilds and unions were two of the ways that I looked at how people incorporated themselves into the city. And I thought, okay, on the one hand, you know, you got to work, got to make a living. Right. And, um, you know, that's one area to look at how people try to incorporate themselves. And then the other one is where people live and, what they are able to do within their own neighborhoods. Because one thing you find um, if you look at urban sort of the urban literature more broadly, urban history literature more broadly, is that poor people do a really good job of internally organizing themselves, even when they don't have a lot of resources. Many of the slums that you find in Latin America, they may look like chaos to you and me, but they're not um, chaos to the people who live there. There's structure, there's organization, um, there's often a power structure, there's often, um, you know, lots of ways in which internally the people in the neighborhood are organized. We as outsiders see that as chaos, but it's not. And so that's what I was trying to understand from the worker's perspective. Um, Sadly, you know, you have to read a lot against the grain to try to understand um, the workers themselves or even try to hear their voices um, because this is a very mediated sort of um, set of documents that I'm I'm using to try to understand um, the experiences of of workers. Um, One of the things that helps is um, the literature and oral histories of, for example, the Taller de Historia Andina, right? Um, and uh, work that Silvia Rivera has um, been involved in and, and lots of others. I, I Sorry, just naming her, but there's lots of others who, who participated, uh, participate in that project. Um, but there are several oral histories that, that I use then to try to understand and bring in the workers' voices um, themselves. There's some really fabulous books about anarchist organizations and, uh, um, you know, the Cook's Federations uh, that you um, that you also incorporate some of those um, some of those oral histories in in really interesting ways. Um, and so I think one of the things that's interesting about this is that once once people organize in unions, they become sort of, uh, I guess, visible to political reformists in certain ways, right? And so you have in this period, now that we're talking about the the 1930s in in the sort of period right before and right after the Chaco War, there's there's a huge amount of um, union organization as well as politicians who are interested in harnessing this kind of popular um, popular unrest for their own political projects, whether it's a kind of paternalist version with um, Bautista Saavedra, or whether it's in the post-Chaco period, you have the military socialists who say, you know, we will um, we will lead this revolution on behalf of workers and, and other people. Um, and so one of the things that, that, that emerges is that, is that um, you, you have these, you have these would be reformers who start to see union activism as something that, that they can ally with, 
Um, but what your work shows is that this union activism really builds on a huge number of other kinds of social organizations that that may be coexisting as well, um, that that are central to the life of these indigenous communities. And so um, they are political actors, not just as workers, but as um, as as vecinos as well, as as sort of members of these communities, or as people who want to put on a festival. Like that is that is something that um, has these longstanding. Holds. And I just, I just really liked how your book helps us understand the nuances of that. Um, but so let's let's go on to um, your next chapter, where you you think about the way that um, the city starts to do um, kind of urban renewal and urban improvement projects, and and you make a contrast from the beginnings of the 20th century, where you have elite paseños sort of putting in fountains, making. Uh, La Alameda, you know, a pretty place for criollos to walk, right? But that, but the later in the 20th century, you get urban development that's really trying to uh, create a modern city. Um, but, but in your fourth chapter, one of the things you insist is that again, these projects were not simply top-down impositions of reformists who discovered that there was need and then and then brought modernization into um, the the zona indígena. Um, what you have is, is a sort of elites who are attempting to do that, but also, as you say, the, these shanty town dwellers or these these um, these urban residents who are in the zona indígena are actively organizing and saying, "We would like water, we would like access to these things, we would like infrastructure," um, and we're able to kind of push back um, and and create something that you call a, a kind of negotiated project of modernity. So, can you talk a little bit about how that looked? in in that period absolutely um i i really wanted to get a a sense as a as as an urban historian i wanted to give people a sense of how the physical space gets built right because it takes human labor to do and so we often don't think about okay so what are the nuts and bolts of that what's the nitty-gritty of getting the city to put asphalt, um, for example, on on uh, Max Paredes, which doesn't come until the 1960s or something like that, right? Um, so I wanted to kind of understand how the, the, the physical sense of the city was built. And I wanted to understand the neighbors themselves, right? Like how are they getting the city officials to buy into what they want, right? And they, they, they engage in what I call this process of negotiated modernity, and they take these elite concepts of modernity and they kind of turn them on their head, right? So they'll argue things like, you know, we are good, capable, hardworking people, and all we want is to become a modern nation like every other nation. So give us water lines. We need electricity. Put in a new school. And so they would turn these notions that elites had about their backwardness and they would use them. They'd be like, yeah, of course we're backwards. Come on, give us, give us the stuff. Yeah, we'll do the labor and you guys send the expert and the materials and we'll put in these uh, sewer pipes or we will um, start digging the water line trenches um, or we will, um, you know, level the place that we want you to put the school. 
Um, and what you find is the neighborhood associations become a conduit for that negotiated modernity. Um, at first, the neighborhood associations are kind of independent. And, and what I'm talking about here is the, the Fed Juve again, um, Federación de Juntas Vecinales. Um, they were kind of an independent sort of um, uh, so, uh, federation in the early 20th century. But as the state grows with the military socialists and then beyond that, and what I mean is the military socialists begin to take over a lot of processes that had been done, say, by the church or others. So, for example, um, they take over all of the burial um uh, taking all of the data on, on burials in the cemetery, and they uh, try to avoid having people buried at the various chapels uh, around the city, right? And so they want to take control of a lot of things. They um, bring in a lot of technocrats. They expand a lot of the, um, especially the uh, municipal government and some of its functions and reaches post um, the military socialists that increases. This also sort of mirrors what happens with the neighborhood associations because the neighborhood associations kind of develop uh, alongside the development of that state and the Fed Hoover becomes ever more powerful through that because the city begins to channel money through it to the associations. And so this becomes a, a mechanism of incorporation in some ways, but also a mechanism for people to kind of channel and stream some of the things that they uh, want for themselves or their communities from a new local market to a new school to a lunch program for uh, worker uh, workers' children. Um Various kinds of things these associations would push for, and you would find that very quickly after one formed, it would immediately, immediate after one formed and was recognized um, as a chartered organization, um, they very quickly begin to um, <clears throat> lay demands on the city. Uh, various kinds, again, depending on where they were. You know, in Miraflores, I remember one one association said that there was clandestine prostitution going on in that uh, neighborhood and they wanted it eliminated. You know, another neighborhood association was like, okay, thank you for the uh, electricity, but now what we want is a school. Um, <clears throat> and so you see those organizations um, kind of channeling uh, these demands and you see, or I saw, how these people... Um, in the neighborhoods use those organizations to their own advantage and kind of looked at what the discourse was, right, to understand this that concept of negotiated modernity. Um, and so that is really where, where that concept lay. And, and what I wanted to understand about the neighborhood associations in the present was that. How did they sort of take root? Because they are still pretty powerful today. Uh, the Fed Juve in La Paz and the Fed Juve in, in El Alto, um, you know, within a week can mobilize lots and lots of people. So I wanted to understand the vibrancy of those, those kinds of organizations. What, what are the roots of that? Yeah, I, I think if any of our listeners have um, have familiarity with Bolivia in the present, they will probably have seen some of the fruits of Fejuve activism. And certainly um, one of the things that your book kind of offers a, a lens at is is things that things that have become flashpoints in the in the turn of the twenty first century, like water, for example, and and who controls water access and on what terms um, is have these have these analogs in, in these 
these earlier struggles at the beginning of the 20th century as well, where you have these these urban residents are organizing to demand rights for these things on their own terms or trying to to get um, as much control from the state as they can. And so you can see how, the, again, these groups have much larger roots than simply um, you know, a response to late 20th century globalization or neoliberal reforms or things like that. Um, I think I think that's really exciting um, as well. And I had I had not really I had not really thought about the long roots of something like Fethuve because it's not how um, the twenty the history of the twentieth century is narrated in many ways in Bolivia. I I think that's fair. Um, it it it. You know, Latin America is incredibly urban, and and we forget that. We forget so, how urban yes. it is. It is, um, yeah, absolutely. When compared to other regions of the world, so uh, that that really opens up lots of avenues to look at Bolivia comparatively with its neighbors, but also in a sort of more global scale, right? Um, and, and to give people a sense of, I. I often feel like the labor that people do gets ma- really easily masked, right? The common masses. And we don't think about that kind of labor um, over time or what it means to build a neighborhood over time, you know? And so I really wanted to get a sense of the physical city. I wanted to get a sense of the people, right? And so... Um, and the kinds of things that the people would do, right? So we have... Um, the you mentioned earlier the the cooks union um one of my favorite stories of the cooks union is how they make alliances with other laborers in other areas of la paz for example in the market um making connections with market vendors making connections with flower vendors um the anarchists tended to be very inclusive right like they even brought in ambulant vendors at one point into the federation um, which is, you know, if you look at Bolivia, it's very controversial to bring in ambulant vendors into, uh, the market federation, given that they're kind of competition for people within the market. But, um, but just the stories of these people, how did they arrive to La Paz? You know, why did they choose cooking? Um, what did they learn from the, their, uh, experiences? How did they integrate into the city? Um, and what kinds of discrimination did they face? Cause these, uh, women talk about, you know, going out in groups on, on their day off to the Alameda and not being served ice cream because of the way they either talked or looked. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those kinds of things, while we think, oh, beautiful city, the Alameda, and then there's this ugliness right there, you know, just uh, in terms of the discrimination. It, it, um, it, it's something that I really wanted to capture and try to understand um, from that sort of historical perspective. I think one of one of the moments kind of early in your book that was that was sort of striking to me was was you talk about the way that um, the the Avenida Buenos Aires was built, right? It was built to connect all of the indigenous, all of the zona indígena without going through the city center. And I've taken, I've walked down Buenos Aires, I've taken buses down Buenos Aires and been like, what an interesting road this is. <laughs> and and of course now, um, you know, some of those, like uh, when I lived in La Paz, I was in San Pedro and and you can get sort of to Alto Sopacachi and all those places. Um, it, it was suddenly it just made a lot of sense. It's like, oh, of course this is what this is. This is a way to connect all the really integral parts of town 
without making it visible to the center of town. And you can get to the Garita, you can get to um, sort of these important transit hubs. So, um, so yeah, I think I think one of the things your book does really well is, is sort of render visible the work that goes into creating a city and the way that, that you encounter it. Um, so let's, I, I have a question about, I want to talk about your fifth chapter because um, I, as you know from, from my own work, it, it, I, I really loved the way that um, you used, you, you delved into court cases and civil suits to try to understand what interactions between people were like on a very granular level and also how people were representing themselves. Um, so kind of going back to the way that urban residents kind of inserted themselves into city life and organized themselves in, uh, in the social scene of that city life. Um, they, you, you show how in these, in these court cases, one of the things that is most often at stake is honor and reputation. And you, and you argue that this is a way of sort of legitimizing participation in both national politics and urban space. This idea that we are honorable, we are, as, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, we are hardworking, we are good, we are for the nation. Um, but, but as a scholars of, of Latin American sort of legal cases, and especially um, the scholars of what it means to be sort of gente decente in um, urban life in Latin America will note the idea that an indigenous poor person in the city would have honor that they could deploy sort of in a suit against other people as a protection against um, their actions or against the actions of others is a kind of not is a kind of radical claim like the judge would not necessarily have seen that person as honorable so how did how did honor function as you saw it in these court cases? And how did you, um, because I think, again, you had to read against the grain to sort of understand the perspective that's coming up from these, from these defendants or from these, um, the, the litigants themselves. This was another uh, attempt for me or a, a real attempt for me to try to understand and, and, and get through to those voices, right, of the voiceless or to try to read against the grain and try to try to see the the self-perception or the perception that was being built right through these documents uh, for the identity of various actors in the court cases. And again, it was about trying to understand physical space because a lot of the fighting that happens, a lot of the uh, arguments, right, they happen in very public spaces, but they also happen in semi-private spaces. So um, if you look at and walk down a street in La Paz, and, and if you do this uh, in a residential neighborhood, all you run into is facades, right? Walls, essentially. And a lot of what life is in La Paz happens in the internal patios of houses. It happens behind those facades, right? And so how do you access that? <laughs> and how do you try to see what's going on there? And, and what I found was, well, when people confront each other over things, it's because they feel those things matter, right? And so even if it's a minor uh, thing, for some reason, it led to a fist fight. Okay, well, why did it lead to a fist fight? So to try to understand that, I would re read these cases um, to get a sense of what the neighborhoods were like, what kinds of actions people um, thought were honorable, what kinds of actions people thought were not honorable, 
one of the things I found, right, is that honor was something that people employed, over, especially working class people employed over and over and over again to no effect. So you would see, right, um, because these cases, uh, you know, they would be compiled and then sewn together, uh, literally sewn together uh, with thread because they're hundreds of pages. Um, the very first things that were usually in there were documents that came from the police. So usually a police report of the incident. And you might get uh, less mediated statements from your sources there because for instance you i would find references to translators right so there would be like a uh, police uh, some kind of uh, scuffle and some and it would say you know um traductor and i and aymara dice blah 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 and then it goes into spanish right and it would t- and it would tell you what the translation was and so sometimes you'd get a very raw sense of what happened there. And then you follow that through the trial and you see that that very raw thing that you first found changes as it goes through a, a case. So um, what I mean by that is uh, the way that the actor expressed himself initially was, you know, I'm defending my honor. Um, I... Um, became upset because of X, Y, and Z. And then, you know, subsequently it becomes a much more complicated kind of uh, story because other actors come in and start mediating what that person has said or not said. Does that make sense? So lawyers will kind of add to the discourse and it will change and um, stuff like that. But honor then will be used even though people will lose a case, they'll, they'll, they will try to appeal it and they'll say, but I'm honorable. And the judge will be like, yeah, right. And then just, you know, rule the same way they had ruled previously. And so I wanted to understand why people were doing this, right? And so honor, as you know, in the colonial era, um, in terms of the literature is very rich, right? We have a very rich literature on what honor means in the colonial era. In the Republican era, we're seeing that literature kind of develop, right? And um, one of the claims uh, it, within that literature, that body of literature, is that honor is a way to interact. It's the private face of the citizen, essentially. It and and uh, you know the public face of the citizen would be how he behaves, he or she um, would behave, sort of in, in terms of interacting with the state, right? And so that's how I, I sort of wanted to understand people's self conception. Why do they keep going back to honor? And so that was the the thread that I pulled on um, to try to understand people's own self perceptions. And I think what I the conclusion I came to, and sort of what I argue in the book is these people they don't have anything else but their word. Many times, right? They aren't connected. They don't have resources, but they are laborers and they do their job efficiently and they would say so, right? So that gives them access to honor. I'm an honorable person because, you know, I'm a shoemaker and I've always dealt with everybody honorably. And, or, you know, I'm an indígena, yes, but I still have honor, right? I'm an honorable indígena. And so there are these ways in which people would employ honor um, to give themselves what I call a form of social capital, right? Um, your your word is your bond. And you see people in the court records really um, take that seriously, but not it not be taken seriously in the context of the court itself. So the actors themselves might say um, that 
being honorable was important for everybody involved, but the judge or the lawyers would just kind of, um, you know, fly right by that and say, well, that doesn't have anything to do with the legal case. Um, those are social worries, uh, not legal theory. So, mm-hmm. um, th- that's kind of where that comes from. Yeah. You, you sort of see that the court cases are where there's an existing social world that mostly functions. And when you get court cases, it's where that social world breaks down, but that doesn't mean that honor didn't, wasn't super important to the functioning of that social world before it broke down on some level. Um, yeah. So one of the things I want to, I want to come to one of the things that, that you're a point that your book makes again and again, and I think this is one of the central claims in your book, which is that in in the sort of narrative of Bolivian 20th century history, you have a couple of really important inflection points. And one of those is the 1952 revolution, which we will get to. Um, but the other one is really the Chaco War in the 1930s, where you have Bolivia launch this super poorly thought out invasion of Paraguay in the sort of hopes that this would, um, that attacking a, a country even poorer than them would result in some useful political, I think, capital for for the uh, Bolivian government. And and it, what it results in is hundreds of thousands in, dead and many people killed, not just from from the fighting, but from hunger and thirst. And it really reveals the the inability of the Bolivian state to um, to to fulfill its promises to its citizens and to mobilize a, a war machinery. And so um, but one of the things that, that your book argues is that if we're thinking about the development of politics and revolutionary politics in in urban La Paz, that that the Chaco War is not quite the rupture that it's been painted to be. That it that it is something more complicated than simply um, you know politicians ignored the masses until 1935 when they discovered them. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, what is the story that your book helps us understand about um, in relationship to the Chaco War? While the Chaco War is a break and a, an important break in a lot of ways, the fundamental changes that occur are very minimal, right? Bolivia doesn't shift courses in terms of its economic structure. Um, the society doesn't uh, decide to, you know, redistribute resources. Um, there, it isn't this grand break in a lot of ways that it is painted to be. Um, but in other ways, it is. It is a break, right, with the past. You see a movement away from trying to think about indigenous peoples as indigenous peoples and this sort of nationalist discourse begin to take shape in the post-Chaco era. I think that's a very important change that we see after the Chaco War, for sure. What I found was a lot of continuity. And I think, um, not to put you on the spot, but you have an argument uh, that is very similar. There's this cyclical nature to Bolivian um, sort of history, right, in terms of its... in terms of of what it has always done, which is exploit natural resources and uh, take those resources out of the ground, whether it be uh, natural gas today or um, silver or tin or copper or what have you. Um, Brett Gustafson, uh, an an uh, archaeologist, oh my God, an anthropologist also makes a similar claim about how reliance on the extractive economy um, sort of um, misshapes the state, right? And, and we see that 
this is a cyclical thing is the other thing that he argues. And she sort of looks back at the um, early 20th century. Um, but you have a very similar argument. So I'm not trying to like put you on the spot, but I think you have a, a really good argument in that sense. Um, the reason the Chaco, one of the reasons I feel the Chaco War is a continuity is you see many of the politicians that emerge as part of the MNR begin to emerge in the late 1920s and early 1930s as junior ministers, as sort of uh, up-and-coming politicians. Um, and we cannot forget that they are part of the elite, even though they, they make up uh, part of the sort of reform movement of the 1940s and, and the MNR. They're still political elites, right? This isn't something that they, they came out of nowhere. Um, they certainly... Do cut, the MNR in particular cuts their teeth throughout the 1940s, learning really how to manage the state, right? Um, with uh, Villaruel and then seeing its its persecution and those kinds of things. So I would argue that the Chaco War, in a lot of ways, you see a continuity in the reformist politics that have taken shape, right? They they shift slightly, but they're very very similar kinds of projects pre um, Chaco War and post. Chaco War, even if the discourses uh, change a bit. And so I think it, it buys into this, or it um, nicely reflects that cyclical aspect of what we've been, uh, what you talk about and sort of what I mentioned earlier. Um, and the other thing is that we see labor unions, um, we see um, attempts prior to the Chaco War at mass mobilization, at um, uh, you know, uh, creating a, a alternative leftist politics. Those things have roots prior to the Chaco War. And so we have to recognize that that's there, right? Um, and that it has to change the way we tell that story because the Chaco War may have been an awakening for some people, but it wasn't an awakening in the same way for all political actors, right? Um, the anarchists uh, that I sort of focus on in, in the book would have argued to the MNR that we've been fighting forever, right? Um, a lot longer than than you have to try to reform things, right? Um, and so that continuity, it, it allows us to see that the MNR has roots. It isn't just springing out of nowhere and that it is part of other reform movements, right? It, and that these politicians did cut their teeth both in the municipal set of, um, you know, air, uh, places they could be elected to, but also at the national level as junior ministers. And so those kinds of things um, showed me as I looked at the documentation that, yes, the Chaco War is a break and it, and it does change things, but there are lots of continuities and Again, one of those continuities is not being able to effectively understand or incorporate indigenous peoples, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, we can make that claim uh, as effectively as, the, as they could have or might have. I don't know. Um, but we see that it, it doesn't do a good job of that in a lot of ways, right? It, uh, the, it's a it's a different way of, of dealing with indigenous peoples. I think you talk about, you know, the, the creation of this worker category and how, how expansive it is, but then also how useful it is for um, both, um, you know, these elite political movements and then also, um, you know, from below as well. Well, thank you so much. One of the things that I think 
it seems to be seems to have actually been a rupture point with the Chaka War is also that uh, you talk about a lot of these anarchists um, who've been you know who've been organizing and and one of the things you see in the Chaka War is just at least a lot of the men get you know drafted into the army right a lot of a lot of the anarchist organizers um, in this period and a lot of the people who were involved in sort of politics at a very grassroots level they're the ones who got drafted first right the state used um, the war to kind of get rid of those people. And so you have, you do actually have some of the, some of the anarchist unions kind of falling apart in this period. Um, But, and then the continuity there would actually be, um, you know, the women's organizations, right? Because they weren't getting drafted quite so much. Um, And so, so that is, that is interesting. And, And I guess one of the things that, that what you were just saying there brought up for me is it's, it's a useful rupture for the MNR. Because it allows them to suggest that they are they are the first, right? They are the first to try to incorporate workers, even though prior to this, there were several attempts to, you know, legislate incorporation of workers. And they're the first to sort of reach out to indigenous people, in, even though that's also not quite true as well. Um, and so if you paint the, the Chaco's rupture, even though it was a huge, important thing, that's where you get... Um, you, you sort of get an MNR centric narrative. Um, so, so while we're talking about the MNR, um, you know, in, in prior conversations that you and I've had, one of the things that you, you say was sort of motivating this project in part was your, your fascination with this idea of the three days of fighting in April of 1952, this sort of MNR revolution that was a pretty profound social revolution. Um, but, but the, the image of how the government was actually toppled in 1952 is three days of fighting in April in La Paz, where you have MNR cadres going around and just um, sort of inciting the masses to rebellion. And as you say, and as this book kind of shows, that's just one part of the story, right? If you're thinking about how you fight an actual battle in La Paz, there you have to know how the neighborhoods work. Um and so, and so the, the final chapter of your book is really trying to understand or, or re, retell this story of the 1952 revolution in a way that centers um, the members of, of these neighborhoods and especially, um, you know, the, the people who were not simply MNR activists. So can you, can you talk a little bit about how the revolution of 52 looks if we are thinking about the urban indigenous history of La Paz? Absolutely. Um, I always thought it was very odd, right, that the MNR triumphs in three days. You know, most the other revolutions that we talk about, uh, successful revolutions that we talk about in Latin America uh, take a lot longer. The Mexican Revolution, you know, a lot longer. Certainly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Cuban Revolution, right, a lot longer than 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 three days. Right. And so I wanted to understand what that meant. um, And then in digging into it, you find that the MNR is very central to most narratives, right? And one of the things I kept thinking is like, well, if if this party was so central to everything, how extensive was its reach prior to um, 52? How um, popular was it? And I couldn't really find that, right? And so I, I just, I wanted to understand, okay, if it only took three days, and if two of the major battle sites are uh, 
either in the indigenous neighborhoods or El Alto, right? Those mm-hmm. two places, two major areas uh, of confrontation that were key to the fighting and to the MNR and its uh, allies winning, what kind of help did the MNR get from within the neighborhoods? And so um, I wanted to kind of decenter the MNR from that story because I wanted to understand what that looked like from the indigenous neighborhoods. And one of the things that that I argue in the text is I don't think the MNR had enough of adherence at the moment to be able to, at that moment, to be able to man all of um, these various areas of La Paz and control them well, right? We know that the Carabineros, this militarized national police, also participated, also provided weapons, and also provided um, logistical support. Um, and then we know that. Um, people from the indigenous neighborhoods helped uh, the MNR in various ways. Women um, women in the indigenous neighborhoods were uh, acted as runners and messengers. Um, you know, the, the story that gets told is one where many of the workers that live in Villa Victoria, they were also in the Chaco War and knew how to handle weapons, right? And also knew military strategy and therefore were able to help defend the indigenous neighborhoods. And um, Mario Murillo's work on this is what kind of helped me see or be able to kind of find worker voices that uh, reflected that, right? And they talk about how they defend Villa Victoria and um, the cemetery. Uh, well, cemeteries kind of in Villa Victoria, but there are two different areas where they're fighting. One near the Pura Pura Forest, which is kind of uh, climbing into what will be La Ceja en el Alto. And then the other sector was near the... Um, near the cemetery. Um, both of those fighting forces are integral to the defeat of the military. One, uh, those going up to El Alto uh, to meet miners and other people who were laying siege to um, the Air Force base there, right? Um, and then, of course, the the people defending the cemetery were trying to defend um, from the army coming into the city center, right? And so... Uh, those are two really important aspects of indigenous neighborhood participation. A third is the the sort of releasing of these weapons from two um, military installations that are in the indig- or were in the indigenous neighborhoods at the time. Um, one of them was a weapons uh, storage facility, and the other one was a small um, outpost. But both. Um, were the fall of both was key to uh, allowing these weapons to kind of get into the workers' um, hands and to other um, MNR allies. And so that is really the story I wanted to tell. You know, the MNR couldn't have been without the participation of these indigenous neighborhoods, just couldn't have been as successful as it was. You needed to be part of these neighborhoods to know the footpaths in and out of Pura Pura Forest to get up to El Alto, for instance. Um, you needed to be a, a member of the neighborhood to know, you know, uh, how to ambush uh, and where to ambush the military when when they were lured into Villa Victoria, for instance, right? And so those kinds of things were 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 what I wanted to investigate about fifty two. I thought I would find, uh, you know, quicker, better, easier links. Like, oh yes, all of these neighbors participated in uh, fifty two. No, I didn't find um, 
any records of them. I went to the cemetery and the pages from the, from 1952 uh, in the record book um, are ripped out. So there's no, no way for me to kind of reconstruct names there. Um, and that record book is actually a copy of originals, right? So uh, these little pieces of paper that would come into the cemetery, those that uh, weren't at the cemetery's archive when I went there um, and nobody could tell me where to find those. And so um, I couldn't, I wanted to, you know, put names and faces to this and try to see if I could find more information on one or two workers as examples, you know, or something that would give me more of a sense of um, indigenous, the the perspective of an indigenous neighborhood participant as such, you know, but I didn't um, really find that um, the way I I thought I would. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's, um, that's really interesting. Um, And I think, I think that is something that I've noticed too, is that the there are there are places where um, the documents sort of disappear, especially in that forty six to fifty two period, um, and so that's a really interesting story. Um, so I guess this leads to my next question, which is um, what what are you working on now, and where do you hope to go next? So it's interesting that I brought the cemetery cemetery story in because that's um, kind of where I'm. Uh, the next project I'm working on is the cemetery, uh, an article on the cemetery, and sort of looking at how the cemetery is a precinct of the city. So it's a neighborhood in the city. If you look at La Paz Cemetery, it's 15 square blocks, almost 100 thousand square meters, I think 94,000 square meters, something like that. So it's a really big uh, space within the city. It's not really a national cemetery, but it, it kind of stands in as a national cemetery in a lot of ways um, because of what's uh, in the cemetery itself. So if you go to La Paz Cemetery, you'll find these Roman style catacombs for most people. Um, you'll find these gigantic monuments, one to um, the leader of the Liberal Party, Jose Manuel Pando, uh, which is this um, gigantic uh, uh, relief sculpture uh, of uh, the Federal War, or at least the um, envisioning of the Federal War. Uh, by elites, right? Um, in 1899, you find monuments to uh, the Chaco War. You find monuments to the the evaders of the Chaco War. You find monuments to the um, the War of the Acre with Brazil. You find um, there's a massive mausoleum to the uh, military dead, right? So there's there are these ways in which it reflects the nation, but it also refracts what the nation actually looks like, right? And so it's a really interesting space to look at what vision of the nation do we get from the cemetery? What do these monuments kind of tell us about what Bolivia or Paseño see as belonging to the nation, right? And the the project I think will become a book eventually, but currently I'm really focusing on um, Gualberto Villarroel and sort of his canonization as a, a martyr for the MNR, right? As this um, sacrificial lamb for economic nationalism. And 
I'm looking at Villarroel in particular because it takes a certain kind of reanimation and reconstruction of that historical figure to make him fit as a saint for the nation and for the MNR, right? And one of the things that you have to kind of gloss over is his death in 46, right? And that the fact, I would argue the fact that that is a, a, a multi-class uh, multiracial coalition that brings him down in 1946, but that's not a useful uh, multinational, multiracial coalition for the MNR to use. So they have to kind of reanimate Villarroel to be this um, sacrificial lamb, again, for economic nationalism. Mm-hmm. And so what that what then that means for the MNR as a party and sort of historical memory and that that sort of thing. D- does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Um, yeah, so you know he gets he gets hung from a lamppost um, by a popular rebellion, and and he is also remembered as a martyr to the popular revolution. Um, and so and so that question of how the dead are remembered and and in what ways is really interesting. So he's not buried in La Paz, mm-hmm. right? He's buried in Cochabamba, where he's from. Uh, there's no monument to 52 within the cemetery. The only monument we have to 52 is the Plaza Villarroel, <laughs> where the monument to 52 sits in Miraflores. And so that's a really interesting uh, dynamic as well, right? And it gets into, I would argue, the MNR's sort of uh, revolutionary vision and discourse of themselves, right? This activist notion of 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 a revolutionary state as we see with um you know the um communist revolutions a very you know intentional art intentional architecture intentional uh film int- right all of these ways in which the revolution is uh, is used or um sorry uh, art and other things are used to push the revolution forward so i'm I, the argument i'm making in the text is that this is one way that the mnr tries to sort of put an imprint of itself uh, in the urban space. And, you know, it's a very intentional act, I would argue, that is meant to say something about the national revolution. That sounds like a fascinating project. That sounds really great. Um, well, thank you so much, Luis, for, um, for, for sharing all that with us and um, for exploring your book and other things with me today. I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to be with us. Thank you so much, uh, Elena, and I hope uh, your listeners uh, do find this enjoyable and informative.